Live from the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, it's the George Sanders Show 2014 Oscar Spectacular. On today's show, live from the red carpet, we will be discussing who wore it best. We will say yes to the dress, and all of us are dressed to impress. Uh, with me, as always, is the Ryan Seacrest to my Joan Rivers, Sean Gilman. Hello, Sean. How are you? I am okay. He's, you're okay. <laughs> you don't sound like you're really, you know absorbing all the glitz and glamour that's before us right now the flash bulbs going off uh what do you think about brad and angie do you think that they uh they're stunning today i i just i can't see anything i'm blinded by all the rhinestones and the <laughs> the flash bulbs all i it's, see it's are, a pretty... all i see are just red spots everywhere <laughs> to get that checked out uh no but serious folks it is our oscar spectacular today um we will be discussing two previous oscar winners um from 1936 the great Ziegfeld by uh director robert z leonard and rob marshall's 2002 winner chicago uh, we'll also i know I, i'm looking forward to it um we'll also be talking about this year's nominees picking uh who we think is going to win for the major categories and who we want to win um, from the major categories. So, oh, and we'll also be listening to music uh, that won the Academy Awards from those respective years, 1936 and 2002. So uh, without further ado, let's hear a clip from The Great Ziegfeld. humble beginning at the Chicago World's Fair developed Flo Ziegfeld, world's foremost star maker. He took this unknown French girl and built her up into one of the best known stage stars of all time. Who won the hour, mister? The house is sold out for a month. It was here at the new Amsterdam Theater that he created a brand new vogue of stage entertainment, the famous Ziegfeld Follies. What a charming, adorable creature she is. And here is another of his famous star family, his widow, perennially popular Billy Burke. And here we have one of his last enterprises, the beautiful Ziegfeld Theater. Now comes the great Ziegfeld, a picture production detailing the glamorous career of this most amazing man. It took two years to make and cost a fortune to produce. With a cast of stars that reads like the Hollywood Social Register. William Powell, Myrna Loy, Louise Rayner, Frank Morgan, Virginia Bruce, Fanny Bryce, Ray Bolger, Harriet Hochter, Ernest Kosar, and 300 glorified girls. Okay, that was a clip from the great Ziegfeld, uh, Robert Z. Leonard's 1936 Oscar winner. Uh, it stars William Powell as uh, Florence Ziegfeld Jr., a producer. Um, it shows his in, pretty much his entire life, or you know, the beginning of his show business career, where he's. Um, at the Chicago World's Fair, and he's got kind of a strongman show, and it's not doing so well. But he he you know uses his charm and his you know uh, show business magic to turn it around, and it follows his career of of fame. And he's not really good with his money, and we see the ups and the downs. Um, he's he's also a womanizer. He's he's married a couple times, and he's always chasing women. Um, and and those women include uh, Powell's 
you know, very famous co-star from the Thin Man films and others, uh, Myrna Loy, uh, who plays Billy Burke, and uh, Louise Rayner, who actually won uh, the Best Actress Award uh, this year for her her performance as Anna Held, his first wife in the film. Uh, this film is just four minutes shy of three hours long, and uh, it it packs a lot in there. Uh, you get, you know, not just the biography of this guy, but you also see... Um, kind of why he's the great Ziegfeld. You know, we see um, recreations of performances from his, you know, the Ziegfeld Follies and from, you know, a lot of his big stage hits. Um, and it's it's quite a uh, spectacular in in terms of the, it's very lavish. They spent a lot of money on on these uh, things, and uh, it really feels to me like a prototypical oscar winner um or at least a nominee where it's it's kind of you know glorifying someone in show business and it's it's going all out um to do so and it's taking its sweet ass time to do it (laughs) so let me ask you sean is the great zigfield great it's 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 the okay zigfield uh, I actually, you know, for for most musicals, uh, a, a lot of people will say like, "Oh, the musical numbers are great, but the stuff in between is just terrible and boring." And I generally don't feel that way. Like, I like the the corny comedy bits and in, in you know, Stair Rogers musicals and and stuff like that. I think it's I think it's funny. Uh, but this one, yeah, uh, I really like the musical numbers, and I really I found the rest of it really really boring. That's interesting because I, I actually, well, I don't totally disagree um, in terms of like I think the musical numbers are are pretty insane. I mean, especially the the there's the major set piece in the middle from the Ziegfeld Follies that um, is this long long shot of I mean <laughs> it, I can't even describe what happens. I mean it's 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 pretty monumental and, and great. Yeah, that's um, that, this, that that central number. It's uh, a pretty girl is like a melody. Uh, I think it's an Irving Berlin song. Uh, yeah. And it's a it's a really long sequence. It's like the uh, it's supposed to be the opening night of the Ziegfeld Follies, which is this new kind of show that that he invented and was very risky and and it's very this very elaborate set that's basically like a giant wedding cake um, that spins. And as it, as it spins, you see all of these girls and all of these uh, weird setups and the music. Uh, it starts as like the Irving Berlin song, and then it like cycles through all kinds of other themes of like classical songs up through uh, Rhapsody in Blue. And in just one long shot, we see uh, the set spiral around, and we see all these girls, and the camera like slowly rises as it's working its way up this wedding cake. And then there there's a cut, and then the camera begins to move in a circle around the set until it gets up to the top where there's like. I don't know, the prettiest girl or whatever. Uh, but it's, it's basically just two shots for this. It's, it, it's got to be almost 10 minutes long. Yeah, it's epic. It's really, it, it's crazy. And it's, and it's really, it's an achievement. I mean, you know, it, to me, and, and we can get more into this later in our discussion, you know, I think this is indicative of the movie itself too, but like, just throwing money at something and making it as lavish as possible doesn't necessarily mean it's great. Um, and, but I think that that section, um, 
filmmaking wise is really cool. You know, I think if I was watching it in the audience, I'd be like, are you kidding me? This is a little bit much. But going back to what you just said, I actually really like the non-musical stuff in the first hour of this movie um, where we see Ziegfeld when he's kind of up and coming and he's kind of hungry and he's, he's trying to work his schemes. Um, and what's great about that section is that he's um, competing against another producer played by Frank Morgan. Um, and I love all of that stuff between the two of them where um, William yeah, Powell yeah. is constantly stealing, uh, you know, women out from underneath him. He's taking money and, and ideas from Frank Morgan and those, those interactions, he steals his Butler. Yeah. Um, those things are fantastic. And I love that stuff. Unfortunately, after the first hour, then it becomes a lot more tedious. This The scenes drag on a lot longer. Um, Frank Morgan disappears for long stretches of the film, and it turns into more of Powell's relationships with his uh, wives and different women in his shows and stuff. And um, while there's still good stuff there, and I think, you know, there's a scene with... Um, with... Um, Louise Rayner that's that's really good for half of it and where she kind of goes back and forth she's a uh, emotional performer and she's she's this French woman that he's brought to uh, the states to to be his you know next big star and it's a really great scene of her going back and forth between hating him and and liking him uh but then it goes on for way too long and it just overstays its welcome and unfortunately the movie as a whole overstays its welcome too which is you know i think it's kind of a shame because i think there's a lot of potential here this thing was uh half as long <laughs> yeah I, I i would agree with all of that I, I i too liked the the early interactions especially the the stuff with frank morgan and you know i frank morgan's one of my favorite character actors of, of the 1930s he's he's always fantastic and uh and he and powell uh play off each other really great and while while I agree that that Rainer does have like a couple of nice moments, for the most part, I I think the film drags because of her performance. It's it's so showy and it's so kind of attention hogging and it's so dragging the movie down. Like it's it's not it's not the great Ziegfeld. It's the great Louise Rainer. Yeah, no, I agree. I you know. I think when she first shows up, I'm like, oh, she's pretty cool. She's pretty interesting. And, you know, I like this kind of dynamic of, um, you know, the French actor and to, you know, get by in the, in the States and stuff. But then um, later on, it, you know, so he ends up leaving her or she leaves him, actually, excuse me, um, because she sees him kissing another woman uh, inadvertently. She was the other one was drunk, so that was his excuse. Yeah, that, that's a, that's uh, another uh, kind of kind of lame plotty thing is that is that Ziegfeld in real life is uh, a, a womanizer, and it's it's pretty obvious that they are covering that up in the film. Oh, totally. To the point that totally. the one time he does kiss another woman, she grabs him and kisses him, and it's all just this misunderstanding that the French woman, you know, happened to to see at that point. And right. Well, so, I want to come back. I want to. Yeah. yeah, I want to come back to that in a second because there's other parts to that that I think are really disingenuous. Um, but this 
scene of of her so she goes she disappears for a bit louise Rainer disappears um and that's when uh Zeg, Ziegfeld, uh you know falls in love with billy burke um with played by myrna loy who is completely wasted i think in this movie um definitely and she's not she's just She's not Billy Burke like at all. Like you know, no. every everyone knows Billy Burke. She was uh, Glinda, the Good Witch in The Wizard of Oz. And and uh, if you know her, the last person you would think to, to cast her would be Myrna Loy. And <laughs> it's true, she's not anything like her at all. And I don't know. Vin Diesel might be a stretch too, but uh, yeah, yeah, like it's it doesn't work. The, the movie got made because because Billy Burke sold the rights to Ziegfeld's life story to MGM in order to, to pay off his debt. And, and at the time the, f- the film was made, she was actually a, a contract player at MGM and, and kind of wanted to, to play herself, but they wouldn't give her the part. They thought, uh, there's, there's a line quoted in the Wikipedia entry that says that uh, they, they thought that she was not a big enough star to play herself. <laughs> Which is just a, a perfect you know, encapsulation of movie studio logic. But yeah. uh, I, I imagine that Bur- Billy Burke would have played a better Billy Burke than Myrna Loy did. Yeah, she's completely wasted here. So Rainer leaves him and he goes off and has this second, you know, life with his new woman, Billy Burke. Um, and then we get this just melodramatic scene of, of Rainer finding out that he got married and calling to congratulate him and then, you know, wishing him the best and, and all the, and all this stuff when secretly she's still pining for him. And, and the yeah, movie really sells. That's the, the Oscar. Fact, the, that's the Oscar real scene. Yeah. And it's terrible. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's way too over the top and, um, and it, and it cheaps her character too. Cause you know, I, she's not the only one, but yeah, you, you, the women that orbit Ziegfeld and they, none of them really have any, um, you know, personality or aspirations of their own. Or if they do, like we see Fanny Bryce for a minute, um, she ends up compromising herself so that she can be in his, you know, um, you know, spectaculars and what have you. Um, but the other scene I wanted to talk about, uh, going back to what you were saying was, you know, where they're trying to make him out to be this, you know, this good, honest man, you know, uh, where there's this young girl that he, I don't know exactly what the relationship between them, but she's, she's like five years old when he first sees her and she's just hanging out with his dad. She's a, and, she's a piano student of his father. His father's a, a, a renowned uh, music instructor. He has a conservatory. Right. Yeah, I guess that makes sense, but it, it feels like she's around there a lot more than she would be if she was just a student. But anyway, she's very familiar with him. Um, anyway, they have this, so what's supposed to be kind of a cutesy thing where, where she's like, Oh, you're going to marry me. Even though she's like five years old. Um, and it, it's actually kind of creepy, <laughs> but then she, she grows up and she comes to see him and get a, you know, a spot in the, in the follies. And, uh, she's like all over him you know she's she kisses him several times and she's sitting on his lap and she's doing all this stuff and she you know she's like 20 something at this point you know and he's very chivalrous you know and he 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 brushes her off and he he says you know i'm a married man now you know and um it's just completely disingenuous and um, it's it's really creepy it's really creepy yeah it's really creepy to see every woman just like throw themselves at uh, and you know I like William Powell. I think William Powell is great, um, but 
it's a creepy character to play and and it doesn't come off the way i think they intended it to <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that they intended it to um, yeah I, do you think they're they're attempting to overcompensate for the fact that he's a theatrical producer who has very strong opinions about women's wardrobes that they're trying to make him more look more heterosexual than perhaps he really was oh i i hadn't even thought about that i mean I I didn't pick that up. I thought they were just overcompensating because they're like this dude was totally, you know, macking every girl he could see and they wanted him to, you know, appear like, you know, he's on the straight and narrow as much as he could be and so they just reined him in. I don't know. It's it's weird. It's weird. What um is- well speaking of speaking of the Wizard of Oz, um you, we mentioned Billy Burke who is not in the film although, you know, she is a character in the film. And of course, Frank Morgan, the wizard is in here. Um, but also we get the great Ray Bolger and, uh, he's, he plays himself and he does this spectacular tap routine, um, in the premiere of the, the follies, um, later that night. And my God, is that not a great freaking dance scene? Yes, it where is. he's doing the where he's doing the splits, but it's, he keeps the, the most agonizing splits I think I've ever seen. <laughs> I don't know how he did it. He keeps going to the ground, and then the music, you know, lifts him up, and then he falls down again, and he's he's lifting himself purely on his I don't even know like his his ankles. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah, it it looks extremely painful. <laughs> uh, that that is one of the, the the really cool things about this about this movie is that there are are people who worked for Ziegfeld who are playing themselves and specifically uh, Ray Bolger and and Fanny Bryce and they they were two of the highlights of the film for me uh, Fanny Bryce in particular who I don't know that I've ever seen her before I may have seen her in like a, a random movie or two from the 30s but uh, I thought she was hilarious uh, she's very interesting yeah I have a uh, there's a Kino, I can't think of the title off the top of my head. I've got something saved on Amazon Instant that she's in, um, where she's the, it's a starring role for her, and I think it's one of the few. And uh, yeah, she's she's great, and she's a really interesting uh, comedian. Have you ever seen the uh, the Barbara Streisand movie about her? I uh, Funny Girl. I have not. I've not seen Funny Girl. No. Yeah, that was, uh, Streisand. I think won the the Best Actress Oscar for playing. I think William Wyler directed. Mm. Mm. Uh, I all, all I've seen are like a, a couple of clips from it, and and uh, it seems to me that that Streisand, uh, her impression was pretty right on. Oh, so yeah, I don't know. Cool. Well, the, the I, film I, that I'm, I was I'm thinking no of... Streisand expert. I've only ever seen one Barbara Streisand film. Was it Guilt Trip? No, it was. Uh, <laughs> Wait, is that the name of that movie? Yeah, I think yeah. It was. or is it's that? Uh, yeah, uh, the only one I've seen is uh, the way we were, which I just watched last year. It's my first ever Barbara Streisand film. I, I don't think I've seen a single Streisand film. Wow. I, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, I like, um, I like Fanny Bryce. I thought I thought she. Was yeah, she's cool. cool. Yeah. yeah uh, the film thinking of i just looked it up it's called be yourself and i think it's you know it's not supposed to be very good but it's uh it's from 1930 and i think it's just basically you know an hour-long probably fanny bryce review uh another actor i was happy to see in here um 
and I think I mentioned him the last time we saw him, which was in Lady for a Day, uh, is Nat Pendleton. Mm-hmm. And he plays Sandow, the muscle man. And uh, as I mentioned back then, he's also in the um, Horse Feathers film. Uh, and he's, I, you know... <laughs> Who did he not play that he's in, a, in Lady for a Day? He played Shakespeare, the, the heavy, the, the tough guy that worked for... Uh, you know, he was like a two-bit, you okay. know, goon, as it were. So he, he doesn't really have much to do in there. Every time I see him... I'm like, hey, it's Nat Pendleton because he just randomly shows up in all these movies from the 30s, and uh, I actually really like the strong man here. He, he uh, you know, he's got this funny mustache, and he's uh, he's just asked to flex his muscles for fainting women. Yeah, that was that was pretty cool. Um, one person who was supposed to be in the film but but couldn't was uh, Will Rogers, and he he uh, died uh, sadly in a plane crash before he could he could make this movie like just before uh so they have like his stand-in doing a a will rogers impression and it's a pretty good will rogers impression but he's not really in the movie that much he has like one scene where apparently zigfeld is the one who gives them the idea to tell jokes instead of just doing rope tricks on stage and uh, that that seems like kind of hollywood myth making to me but i don't really know yeah yeah well i i Going off of the other stuff that happens in this movie, I'm pretty sure it's probably stretching the truth, to say the least. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, this film reminded me a lot of uh, of Busby Berkeley musicals, like especially in that in that one sequence that we're talking about, where it has like the the big enormous stage set, and it it goes on. It's not just the the wedding cake thing. Like there's. It's like a good like half hour, if not more, of of Ziegfeld Follies musical numbers right in the middle, and some of the sets are like these uh, stages on platforms that are moving as like women get out of bed and, and get really drunk, um, and it's just all yeah, kinds that was a of really weird dance. <laughs> yeah, the, it's all kinds of of just these these weird sequences and. Uh, one thing that Berkeley was known for, he, uh, uh, of course, started directing musicals at uh, and choreographing musicals at Warner Brothers a few years before the uh, the Great Ziegfeld came out, and the his musicals are ostensibly stage performances, but when the actual musical number starts, things happen that could never possibly be contained on a stage. So it's like this this kind of uh, ultra-cinematic flight of fancy in these musical numbers. Like there's like a giant waterfall and a, and a pool and, you know, the, the camera shoots directly overhead. So you see all these weird geometric patterns in a, in a way that nobody in an audience would ever actually see it. Well, the, the great Ziegfeld kind of plays with that in that they're really elaborate sets. But I, I I noticed that the camera always stayed in a position where somebody in an audience would actually see it. And they always make pains to show that what is happening could actually have been on a stage. A really big stage, but still on a stage. So I thought it, oh, yeah. that was kind of interesting. It was kind of uh, MGM-ifying the, the Berkeley musicals and that they're they're putting like these enormous resources through it. MGM was like the, the biggest, most powerful studio. So they just throw money at everything, much like, like Ziegfeld would. Um, I read that the, uh, the, the Follies sequence that we were talking about on the rotating stage, uh, it cost more for MGM to film that one scene than it took for Ziegfeld to actually mount any of his performances. <laughs> yeah, so that I, goes to show you, you know, the attention 
Yeah, I think that one set costs like uh, in in today's money would cost like three point seven million dollars. Yeah, for that it's that pretty just, insane. that wedding cake set, and uh, yeah, that's just ridiculous. And and you know the the movie is supposedly like the longest talking film up to that point. Like there had been silent films that that were longer, like Intolerance or Birth of a Nation or something, but through like the the first half of the of the 1930s it was, it was really rare to have uh, a movie more than two hours long and then this one is is three hours so there's just it's just big it's very excessive but you know go, talking about that kind of excessiveness i wish that you know, studios now. I, I wish that I could see a movie like this, even though I didn't love this movie, but that 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 paid attention to like practical sets and did these lavish numbers. Like, you know, throw your forty million dollar CGI budget to doing something like this instead with practical stages instead of like robots fighting each other. Like it'd be really cool to see something like this still being done but it's it's such a relic of the past like they you know you you'll never see anything close to this now yeah i think the uh, I, I think a closer analog to something like this would be like uh the lord of the rings movies which are still you know computer generated effects but um it's much i i i think it's much more that kind of of film than it is uh, uh like chicago yeah yeah no oh, i agree yeah, no, because I actually want to, when we get to Chicago, I want to talk about how cheap everything <laughs> looks. And, uh, anyway, we'll save that for, for that discussion. All right, well, before we move on, uh, this was the Best Picture winner from 1936. Uh, I'm guessing that you do not think it is a, a deserved winner. What would you be your pick <laughs> for the Best Picture of 1936? Out of all of the uh, films from that year, whether they got nominated or not. Any any film that came out in those twelve months. Uh, well, I'm going to be obvious for me, uh, and I am going to go Modern Times, Charlie Chaplin's uh, film uh, about the industrial age. And you know, I, what more can I say about that that I haven't said about Chaplin on every other show? But uh, he's on roller skates at one point, and it's absolutely stunning. And you know, it was probably a lot cheaper than that Ziegfeld Follies centerpiece, but it's equally as magical. And I love it. Uh, I will also be picking a, a film that is much cheaper than The Great Ziegfeld, but it is also a musical. It's Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers in Swing Time, directed by George Stevens. It's my favorite of their films, and it actually won an Academy Award for Best Original Song, uh, The Way You Look Tonight, which we're going to listen to Fred sing right now. Just the way you look tonight 
that wrinkles your nose Touches my foolish heart Lovely, never, never change Keep that breathless charm Won't you please arrange it Cause I love you Just the way you look So this week on the show, we're going to dispense with our normal hullabaloo and engage in some abnormal hullabaloo because the Oscars are coming up next week. And I'd, I don't know about you, Mike, but I love the Oscars. I have always loved the Oscars. It's one of my earliest memories is of watching the show. I think I've seen every show since the one where Chariots of Fire won. And I think that aired in 1982, like just before my sixth birthday. Um, Every year, I you know I, I I watch from start to finish. I watch all the commercials. I see all the speeches. I even watch all the musical numbers. And every year they get it wrong. And this year is going to be no exception. So what we're going to do is we're going to give our picks for what films should win the major awards, what actors, what screenplays, and at the same time make our totally worthless and completely unreliable predictions for what the Academy will award. So yes, I should I should do preface you, do this. Do you like the Oscars as much as I do? Uh, like is a strong word. Uh, I I do indulge. You know, it is the Super Bowl for nerds, um, and so you know, I took the day off from work <laughs> um, so that I could make it for my Oscar party, my annual Oscar party. Um, and every year I get excited and I fill out my ballot and I, I you know, I'm, I'm ready to go at, you know, 4.30 for the whole red carpet thing. And in about an hour in, I am beating my head against the wall and cursing myself for, you know, subjecting myself to four hours of just god awfulness. Um, but then I come back every year, so I, I must like the pain somehow. Well, I think I think, um, I think it's part of the fun, and and that's that's one of the great things about movies is that is that everyone is right in a way, but it also means that everyone is wrong, and and the Oscars are always wrong, and and complaining about the Oscars is as much a tradition as you know fancy tuxedos and and ridiculous dresses. I know, but if they if they were right, I, they would be boring. I I. I'm not beating my head against the wall necessarily because they made the wrong decision. Uh, purely, I, I, I really exhausted with telecast. Like I, I find the whole um, show to be just exhausting and annoying. Like I don't even care at this point. I used to, you know, have an investment in who was going to win and who was going to lose, um, and take it personally. I'm, I'm far beyond that now. Now it's. Just, they're you know trotting out two people that i don't know who they are and they they go through the worst banter alive uh that's when i want to dunk my head in the fishbowl and and drown you know what i mean so i i actually love that stuff the more the more awkward the introductions the the happier i am 
I don't, I don't like the, I don't I, like, I don't I don't like care for like the scripted ones where like Ben Stiller comes out in like a green screen outfit where it's all you know very prepared and written. I want to see like some you know seventy year old actor and some twenty year old starlet who have who have no idea who each other are try to to act natural together and totally fail. <laughs> That's what I love. Well, you're an odd little man. Yeah, and what 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 most annoys me about the telecast is that they they took the uh, the honorary Oscars out of the show. So like the the people who, you know, people like Akira Kurosawa or Federico Fellini and are, uh, you know, people who who are too foreign or too good or too weird to have won actual competitive Oscars get a lifetime achievement award. And that used to be like a really cool part of the show where you see like, you know, Kirk Douglas up on the stage and being being awesome and, and finally winning an award, even if it's not a competitive one. And now they've shunted that off to like some banquet in December that that nobody gets to watch. And I, I really hate that. Yeah, it's really annoying. I find, well, it, also, I find it really disrespectful. And also on like the red carpet show, when, when Mickey Rooney walks by and Ryan Seacrest won't talk to him, I'm like, I would much rather hear what Ryan Seacrest or what Mickey Rooney has to say to Ryan Seacrest than, you know, what, what Jennifer Lawrence has to say about anything. Right. I, I agree. I mean, well, going off of on that, I really wish, and they never do, and they, I don't know if they ever have, but, you know, the technical awards, you know, they always do that pre-show thing and they show like highlights from it and i that's one of my favorite parts of the oscars because you see the most like nerdy maladjusted uh you know completely not photogenic people winning these awards and it's great like i wish that they could incorporate those people into the actual show because um those people are amazing yeah i i agree (laughs) I like I like right. I like seeing the people who who don't get on camera get to be on there and and give their speech and I hate that they that they cut them off like the visual effects people or the costume designers or the you know the the production designers like those that's that's what the Oscars is all about is is recognizing those people that don't get in like the tabloids and the uh, the uh, they don't get on E right Joan Rivers isn't interested in talking to them right. Anyway, that being said, we're not going to talk about any of their awards. We're just going to talk about the big ones. <laughs> so, let's, Fuck let's, you. <laughs> let's start with uh, original screenplay. And so the, the nominees for original screenplay this year are American Hustle, Blue Jasmine, Dallas Buyers Club, Her, and Nebraska. What do you think is going to win? And what would you give the award to out of all of the 2013 films? Uh, I think her is going to win. Uh, I don't think her is going to win, you know, picture or age rewards, but I, I feel like this is the one that it's closest to winning. Um, cause it's kind of weird. Um, so and that, they tend to do that, you know, it didn't I think Charlie Kaufman won for eternal sunshine, um, for original screenplay. So I think her is going to win it. Um, and, of the shoulds, uh, this is the first of me uh, changing the Oscar rules because I think um, Before Midnight should be nominated for original play, not adapted screenplay, because that's really stupid. That um, <laughs> just because it's uh, you know a third part in a trilogy, um, it's suddenly adapted from something. Um, so I'm picking Before Midnight because I think it's the most honest and uh, interesting screenplay of the year. Huh. Okay. Uh, I think it's I think it's adapted. I'm I'm fine with that. It's based on on 
you know, previously created characters. I don't have a problem. I think that's so stupid. Of, of all of, that's... like, the dumb Oscar roles, I have less problem with that than, than anything. But whatever. Uh, I actually, <laughs> I think American Hustle is going to win because people seem to like it, and it's inexplicable to me. And I just, I can't see any of these others winning. I think, I think her is, is too weird. Uh, Nebraska seems kind of too depressing. And I, I just, I don't see anyone going for, for Woody Allen or for the Dallas Buyers Club. And I, it, you know, it's inexplicable to me, the love for American hustle, but, but it's there and it, it's undeniable. And I think, I don't think it's, you know, we'll, we'll get to its other, you know, the other categories later because it's nominated in all of them. But I think this is the one that it wins. Well, yeah, I'm, uh, I guess if, if you're bringing it up now, um, this might be wishful thinking, art, but all of my predictions um, do not include it. Um, I think I'm wrong. I'll say that much. I think it's going to win at least one or two. Um, and I'm going to be very, very angry. But uh, yeah. And and my pick uh, is uh, a film we actually talked about on the show, uh, Andrew Bajalski's Computer Chess, which I think is a, a really fascinating film that that works on a lot of levels. And it's it's just I I love the the kind of rabbit hole it it creates out of this very simple setup that that seems to just be like an exercise in nostalgia, but is actually you know there's there's a lot going on. There's there's a lot to chew on in the in that screenplay. And uh, it's, it's a it's a good choice. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so let's go on to adapted. And and before we move on, we should uh, point out that the only films that we're considering as eligible for this are ones that have an IMDb IMDb date of 2013, because that's the way you and I date movies. We think if if it played for the first time in 2013, then it's a 2013 film. No matter where it played at a, a film festival, you know, doesn't matter. And what it also means is that films that might have played a film festival, say, in, in 2012, don't count for 2013. So something like uh, Terrence Malick's To the Wonder is a 2012 film, or uh, Joshua Oppenheimer's The Act of Killing, 2012 film. Not eligible for us. Right. Uh, so right, let's right, right. move on to Adapted Screenplay, which uh, the Oscars have nominated Before Midnight, Captain Phillips, Philomena, Philomena? I think Philomena. Uh, Twelve Years a Slave, <laughs> Twelve Years a Slave, and The Wolf of Wall Street. So, what what do you think will win, and what should win? Uh, this is the I think looking at my list here, the only one where I think I agree with what I think is going to win. So, uh, I think Twelve Years a Slave is gonna is gonna take it, and uh, I think it deserves it. I think that that screenplay, you know, it's not very flashy, um, but it. I think it handles the material really well um, in an interesting way, and uh, it's 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 pretty damn solid. So I'm go- I'm going Twelve Years a Slave. And what would you pick? Twelve Years a Slave. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Did you not hear me? The, the, the secret's out. I never actually listened to what you say. <laughs> uh, I, I I too think that Twelve Years a Slave is going to win, but uh, that would not be my pick because I haven't seen that movie yet. Uh, in, in true George Sanders fashion, I spent the last week watching Best Picture winners that I had never seen before uh, instead of watching 2013 movies that would be eligible for a big award show. So I still have yet to see 12 Years a Slave. Uh, so my pick would be uh, The Wolf of Wall Street. 
which is another one that we talked about on the show, which I think is is just a, a really I think it's really funny. Yeah, it's a funny movie. Uh, I I uh, try. I was trying to come up with with five films that I would nominate for a best adapted screenplay award, and I had a really hard time with it. I've really I've only got three that I really like. Uh, is this was just not a good year for adapted screenplays, at least of the like 43 2013 movies that I've seen. Almost all of the ones that I liked were originals. Yeah. So I, I, I really do need to see 12 Years a Slave. It's very good. I mean, I, I, it's high on my list. It'll, it'll be mentioned again later. Um, you know, I, I just, I don't embrace it as much as I do a couple other movies from this year, but it's, it's, I will not be sad when it wins stuff at the Oscars because it's it's a very solid film. Yeah, it 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 looks like a solid film. It it looks it looks good. It looks really depressing, and and I I recoil from depressing looking films, but I, <laughs> I do I do want to see it. Uh, let's move on to best supporting actress. The Oscars have nominated Sally Hawkins in Blue Jasmine, Jennifer Lawrence in American Hustle, Lupita Nyong'o in 12 Years a Slave, Julia Roberts from August Osage County, and June Squibb from Nebraska. Who do you think is going to win? Well, I realize uh, I just had that preamble for the last thing where I where I said it was the one time I agreed with the Academy or what I think the Academy is going to realize that I'm doing it again. Uh, I think uh, Lupita Nyong'o from... Uh, is a slave is going to win um and i think she deserves it um she is i know it's funny you know we don't care about spoilers on this show uh when we're talking about things we've both seen but i don't want to spoil anything for you but uh she's totally uh she's a very affecting performance and it's it's very real and raw and uh and she's i think she's yeah, I, I think she, I think she'll win as well. From from what I understand, she's got a, a lot of buzz behind her. Uh, but if I was giving out the award, it would go to uh, Sally Hawkins, who I love me some Sally Hawkins. I I, I I think she's fantastic. She did not get nominated at all for Happy Go Lucky, if I remember correctly, uh, which is she didn't. I don't think so. No. Oh, oh my let god. Me look it up. There it is. <laughs> Yeah, this is her first Oscar nomination. That Although is she, a she, travesty. She did win the Golden Globe for Happy Go Lucky, but nobody cares about the Golden Globes. Uh, she's I love Sally Hawkins. Oh, yeah, she's fantastic, and she's really good in in Blue Jasmine, which is a, a film I just caught up with yesterday, and is also a really depressing movie. It, yes, it is. Uh, Even though it's got two of the greatest comedians ever in it, Louis C. and Andrew Dice. Okay. How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> Moving right along to Best Supporting Actor. The Oscars have nominated uh, Barkhad Abdi from Captain Phillips, Bradley Cooper from American Hustle, Michael Fassbender from 12 Years a Slave, Jonah Hill from The Wolf of Wall Street, and Jared Leto from Dallas Buyers Club. Who do you think is going to win? Uh, I think Jordan Cattle is gonna is gonna win it. Uh, that's that's the buzz that I'm hearing, uh, from my peeps. Uh, I haven't seen Dallas Buyers Club, so I can't really say. It's hard for me to believe that Jared Leto is gonna win something. Um, but 
you know, I haven't seen him in anything since my so-called life. So there you go. Uh, my pick uh, for supporting actor is Jonah Hill, who, uh, as we mentioned during our Wolf of Wall Street discussion, I never really cared for much uh, until this film. He actually kind of, you know, floored me. Uh, I I really love what he does with this character here. Um, if, uh, he plays a schlubby kind of guy. You know, DiCaprio's character... You buy into DiCaprio from the word go in this thing because he's just, you know, oozing this charm and, and what have you. But Jonah Hill is it plays this schlub that kind of gets wrapped up in it and gets in over his head and he does ridiculous, stupid things. And uh, I think he's just fantastic. I think he completely holds his own against DiCaprio, who is also really, really good. That That's a good choice. Uh, I, 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 too, am going with Jared Leto. Uh who, uh, as well for me, is is always Jordan Catalano from My Soul Called Life. Uh, he seems to have won the the like weight loss awards or physical transformation awards that uh, that always impresses the actors branch of the Academy. Uh, That's right. Uh, Dallas Buyers Club, of course, is is another film that I haven't seen, so it's very possible he's fantastic in it, and uh, I'm making fun of him for no reason, but. Uh, <laughs> My, well, but after what he did to Angela, I mean, he deserves it. That's true, and you know, he just he closes his eyes like it's 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 uh, looking at the world is painful for him. That's... Uh, I'm actually I'm, I'm having a tough time picking a supporting actor. Like I, I think I think Jonah Hill is really good. Uh, I think ultimately it comes down to me uh, between uh, The Rock in Pain and Gain and Nick Frost in The World's End, and I think I'm going with Nick Frost, who is. Uh, he plays like the the straight man in that film, which is a little unusual for uh, his his appearance with Simon Pegg. But I think he's uh, I think he's really great in 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 that movie. He's fantastic. That movie might come up uh, later on in this discussion. Yeah, and he's actually good in the action scenes as well. And uh, uh, as uh, I learned at that uh, to motivate him. To, to work during the action scenes and to like give a really good performance, the uh, the stunt coordinator would uh, would psych him up by calling him the White Samo Hung, which uh, <laughs> is a great That's thing to, to aspire to be. So I, I'm given the That's supporting fantastic. actor award to the White Samo Hung. He he is responsible for the uh, the biggest laugh for me in that movie when he's drunk and he finally decides to with Simon Pegg's plan and he walks into that door and uh, the glass in the door. Oh my God, I lost it. I just lost it. But <laughs> it's a great pick. Uh, so for lead actress, the Academy has nominated uh, Amy Adams from American Hustle, Kate Blanchett from Blue Jasmine, Sandra Bullock from Gav- Gravity, Judy Dench from Philomena and Meryl Streep from August Osage County. Who do you think will win, and who would should win? Uh, Blanchett's going to win. Uh, the, the lock. I mean, I don't think anybody's disagreeing with me on here. Um, you could prove me wrong, but um, yeah, I think Blanchett's got it in the bag. Um, my pick uh, is, and for my pick, uh, you know, I was leaning Blanchett. I think she's fantastic. Um, she she totally deserves it. Uh, she, think of anybody else that could really inhabit that role um and sell it. she does in blue jasmine but uh, i'm going to delpy for before midnight um she's always been the best part of the before um and she's she was in the first two films um her character is 
a pole and you know she's she's three-dimensional um much more interesting than ethan hawk's character is ever she's smarter than him um and she's just she's wonderful you know i would i would watch her again in in every nine years yeah uh, she she is most definitely the best part of those films and and she's fantastic but uh but like you, I think I think uh, Kate Blanchett is is going to win, and I actually think she should win. I think she is is fantastic. She's one of my favorite actresses. I think she's the best actress working today. It's it's either her or Tilda Swinton. I go back and forth depending on which one I've seen most recently, and and she's she's really she's really good in Blue Jasmine. It's a very actorly performance. She gets to do all kinds of of like big actor things like have nervous breakdowns and have, you know, ticks and, and freak outs and, and all of that stuff. But, but she does it really well. She does it really well. And what's really great about it is, is using that flashback structure. Um, you, you manage to see, uh, her cracking, like, you know, she's not, she's not like, Strionic the entire movie, you know what I mean? Where yeah, it's yeah. It's, a, it's a well modulated performance. She's not constantly at you know eleven, right? Um, but no, she's fantastic. I mean, like I said, I, uh, until we started recording, I she was pretty much my go for that too. But uh, you know, I had to, I had to buck the trend. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's move on to best actor. Uh, the nominees are Christian Bale from American Hustle, Bruce Dern from Nebraska, Leonardo DiCaprio from The Wolf of Wall Street, uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor from 12 Years a Slave, and Matthew McConaughey from The Dallas Buyers Club. Who do you think is going to win, and who would you give the award to? Uh, I think McConaughey is going to win it. Uh, everybody loves McConaughey right now, including me. Uh, you know, Like I said, I haven't seen Dallas Buyers, um, but he's fantastic. Uh, in the Wolf of Wall Street, in his very short, you know, two film, uh, and I think it's time for McConaughey. You know, the McConaughey needs a capper to it, and I think this might be it. My pick, and you know, you mentioned the film earlier. I'm going Simon Pegg, kind of like Kate Blanchett in uh, Blue Jasmine. He's willing to be incredibly unlikable, um, and it's a very fierce performance and i think he he really sells that character the desperation um the depression of of uh, gary king so i'm um, yeah simon peg yeah i think i think i think peg's fantastic um my pick i i just i can't see matthew mcconaughey winning and i can't see dallas buyers club getting both actor awards uh i i'm I haven't been following the buzz. Maybe McConaughey's considered a lock. I don't know, but I I, I think Chiwetel Ejiofor is going to win. I think I think this is going to be a good night for Twelve Years a Slave. It's just a kind of feeling I have, and I I really like Chiwetel Ejiofor in in all the other things that I've seen him in. Uh, so, yeah, I hope he wins. But uh, uh, yeah, he's great. But if I had to give out the award, I would go with Leonardo DiCaprio and. Like in a, in a world where The Wolf of Wall Street was was a little more better received by by the audience at large, like it, it's been a hit, but it hasn't been quite the the critical smash that something like Twelve Years a Slave has been. Uh, I think I think this would be Leonardo DiCaprio's year because he's he's never won before, and I think this is one of his best performances, and it's very much an award worthy performance. And uh, 
when I when I hand out my own awards on on my blog, I I combine films. So like if an actor is in multiple films in a year, you know, I that, that gives them like bonus credit. And if you add in DiCaprio's performance in in The Great Gatsby, I think it's it's easily the best work of of any actor I've seen from 2013. I think he's great. He's fantastic. He's wonderful. And you you know, yeah. Um I it's it's amazing that he hasn't won yet. He's yeah. he's fantastic. It, it's more of a of a comic performance in The Wolf of Wall Street and and something like that. The Academy's not really going to go for it if he doesn't end up like learning a lesson or getting punished in the end and and he doesn't. There's not the kind of moral element in in Wolf of Wall Street that that makes you know the uh, the judgmental feel good about themselves for voting for it. So I think it'll probably come down to to a more uh, traditional social problem film like like Dallas Buyers Club or or Twelve Years a Slave, which which is a shame because I think I think Leo's fantastic. Yeah, and well, like you said, his performance is about performance, and he he has to you know rally the troops, and he has to sell. Uh, what they're doing to people, and I buy him when I'm watching him do it. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's so great in those in those speeches he gives to like the the motivating speeches to to rally the troops. They're they're so magnetic and they're so persuasive, and and you really get an understanding of, of why he's such a great salesman. And that's all in Leo's performance. Oh yeah. All right, let's uh, let's move on to best director and the the Academy nominated David O. Russell for American Hustle, uh, <laughs> Alfonso Cuarón for Gravity, Alexander Payne for Nebraska, Steve McQueen for Twelve Years a Slave, and Martin Scorsese for The Wolf of Wall Street. What you got? Uh, I think uh, Alfonso Cuarón's going to win it uh, for Gravity. Uh, you know, it's such a technical achievement, and uh, I you know. I, I like the big ones. I think he won the director's guild one for this. And so I I think, think he's going to be the one to beat. Um, I pick a Scorsese. Um, I think Wall Street is phenomenal. Um, uh, It's, you know, of of the nominees and I'm not just picking up the nominees, but um, it's definitely the most uh, impressive directing job uh, trying to make such a, a, a film that's like so exuberant and explosive but to make it so i don't even want to say tight because it's a three-hour movie but like the rhythm that he gets out of the thing is just is is incredible yeah um i i i am having a hard time predicting between between Quaron and uh and steve mcqueen like the uh the director's guild thing is, is a really good indication for for Quaron, but i just it seems to me that like the the sci-fi action film gets nominated for Oscars, but it never wins. So I I have a hard time seeing it winning. Although although last year Ang Lee won for Life of Pi. So what do I know? Uh, what do you know? <laughs> I, I I'm going to predict uh, uh, Steve McQueen though for for Twelve Years a Slave. Just because I I think uh, I think the Academy wants to make a statement that that slavery is bad. <laughs> And, <laughs> and I agree. And for the record, not having seen Twelve Years a Slave, I agree. Slavery is bad. Uh, my pick for best director is uh, is Hong Sang Soo, who directed two of my my ten favorite films of twenty thirteen, uh, Ar Soon Hee and Nobody's Daughter Haewon. And while while neither of them are my favorite film of the year, I don't I don't think any director had a better year 
in 2013 than Hong Sang-soo because they they're both amazing films and yeah you should you should watch them because I don't think you've seen either of them I haven't I are they out on DVD yet uh, I think nobody's daughter Haewon might be in uh, Korea I'm not sure <laughs> well I'll get right on that Sean yeah uh, I, I I like the Hong Sang Soo I've seen I but you know I I ha- these aren't available to me yet so yeah and that's uh, that's the the tough thing about uh, about our our chosen method of delineating film years is that a lot of a lot of the movies that played in festivals like I saw I saw our Sunhi at the Vancouver Film Festival in 2013 if it ever actually does get released in the U S which it won't. But were it to, it would not be eligible for the the awards that year. So they, these kind of festival movies fall in into this uh, this weird loophole, where half the people don't consider them until they play in the U.S. And then when they do play in the U.S., they don't get considered for awards because they actually premiered the year before. So it's 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 annoying. Is something like uh, like uh, Abbas Kiarostami's like Someone in Love, which was uh, my favorite film of 2012. It played, it opened in the U.S. in 2013, but at end of the year time, everyone's forgotten about it, so it, it doesn't get mentioned for any of those uh, awards, you know, critics lists for people who would actually consider it a 2013 film because it had its, you know, it, it played wide in the U.S. well, relatively wide in the U.S. in that year, but. That's a, a tangent about about years that we go on all the time, and we should <laughs> we should move on. <laughs> uh, so this is the big one. This is the big one. This is Best Picture, and the Oscar nominees are American Hustle, <clears throat> uh, Captain Phillips, The Dallas Buyers Club, Gravity, Her, Nebraska, Philomena, Twelve Years a Slave, and The Wolf of Wall Street. That's a lot of movies. There's nine <laughs> movies this year out of ten, ten possible ones, and why they didn't throw Inside Lewin Davis on there, I I don't know. But well, they've done. It's been they've picked like it's been nine like the last three or four years running, right? I mean, it's just really weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, this is another one where I think I think the the front runner is Twelve Years a Slave. Um, like you said, uh, slavery is wrong, but I don't, I, I have this inkling gravity is going to win it. Um, cause it's, you know, it's such a singular experience or whatever. Um, so I, I, you know, I, f- I feel bad about it, but I'm picking gravity as, as what's going to win. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, from what I understand it, 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 it seems like it's down to those two. I think. One thing that the 12, that Twelve Years a Slave has in its favor is that a lot of the Oscar voters watch these movies on screeners, and they're not going out to see Gravity, you know, in 3D in the theater, where it's it's much more of a of an immersive experience. I think I think Twelve Years a Slave better um, plays better on on television, most likely, than than Gravity would. And That's and plus, point. it's it's got you know it's got the the big strong social message, which which the Academy has always fond of so i i think i think 12 years a slave is going to win uh well instead of instead of picking our you know our, our top favorites let, let's go ahead and count down our top five films of the year so do you want to just do an alternator or do you want to just list your five 
I can just list my five. Okay. Uh, number five is All Is Lost, which is, uh, you know, it's it's been lumped in as a companion piece in a way to Gravity, and I think it's better than Gravity in almost every way. Uh, Before Midnight, which I've talked about a couple of times now, uh, is my number four. Uh, 12 Years a Slave is my number three. The Wolf of Wall Street is my number two, but my favorite film of 2013 is one we talked about on the show way back when, uh, well, actually right before it came out here in the States in a bastardized cut, uh, Wong Kar Wai's The Grandmaster, which uh, I've seen twice now in the Chinese cut, and I think it's, I think it's amazing. I think it's, I think it's everything I expected it to be and more, and I think it's a beautiful film. Um, that, you know, it is nominated for a couple of awards. It's nominated for cinematography and I think costume design. Um, and I'm glad to see it there, but it, it should be in the discussion if it was released in its actual cut in the United States, um, in other categories as well. Yeah, that, that is a great top five. Uh, mine is, uh, number five is the, the Wolf of Wall Street, uh, which I like a lot. Number four is, uh, Jankas, A Touch of Sin which we haven't talked about. I think it'll, it'll play later this year somewhere. It already played at the, uh, it played at the Northwest Home Forum here. And then it, I think it's playing again at SIF uh, at the beginning of March. Okay. Uh, maybe, I do, do want to see it. Yeah. Maybe we'll, we'll talk about that at, at some point. Uh, it's, it's a really, you know, terrific film about, about violence in contemporary China. Uh, number, my number three is uh, Johnny Toe's Blind Detective. Uh, an episode of the George Sanders show can't go by without me talking about Johnny Toe. And, uh, this is one of his, his more fun, uh, uh, crazier movies in, in years. He's been in kind of a, uh, he's made a lot of serious films, um, recently like uh, drug war, which he talked about on the very first episode of the show, but blind detective is him at, at his loosest and at his most, uh, genre mixing. It, it's a, it's a blast. Uh, my number two favorite film of the year is uh, is a documentary, and it's actually nominated in the best foreign film category for the Oscars this year, and that is uh, Rithi Pan's The Missing Picture, which is uh, about the Khmer Rouge in in Cambodia and the inability for him to to process it because there's no kind of images of what happened there. There's just his memories, so there's no film record of it. So he in order to tell the story of the uh, the genocide in the Khmer Rouge, he creates these kind of uh, dioramas that are are really cool and really really poignant and really touching. And it's it's drawn some comparisons to the Act of Killing, the documentary, which we think is a, a twenty twelve film. But I, I think it's it's much better both in uh, in trying to to come to terms with with atrocity and in in the way that that cinema can help us kind of make sense of the world. But my favorite film of the year, my number one film, is La Ultima Pelicula, which I actually just rewatched this morning, and I'm I'm happy to say it it holds up. It's a uh, uh, a comedy, I guess, about a, a, a film director who goes to Mexico in order to make the last movie. He's gathered all of the the remaining bits of film at the end of the world and he's gone to the Yucatan for the Mayan apocalypse in December of 2012. And he's going to make the last movie at the end of the world. And it's, it's pretty crazy. It's, it's pretty weird. It uses all kinds of different film stocks and in, in kind of uh, uh, in, in really interesting ways. It's, it's a film that's about 
cinema. It's about like the actual like physical textures of, of cinema and the different and different you know sixteen millimeter, eight millimeter digital film and the different things that they can add to a film. And it's also a film about about cinephilia, about the love of movies. It's it's uh, in some ways a, a remake of Dennis Hopper's The Last Movie, and it's. It's just it's just a fascinating film to think about, and I really need to to write about it at some point, and I'm hoping to do that in in the next week or so. We'll we'll see, but uh, yeah, that's that's another one that I think is supposed to come out in Seattle this spring, and uh, I hope we'll we'll get to do a, a George Sanders about at at that time. Yeah, I look forward to it. I've, I've heard nothing but great things about it, mostly from you, but uh, yeah. yeah. I, I, I seem to be like the film's biggest booster. On I went through all like the letterbox reviews, and I think I've given it the the highest ratings. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> maybe 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 it's just me, but I I I love that movie, and I was I was really I was really worried about rewatching it because I saw it in such a, a fun environment in in Vancouver that I didn't know how well it would play, you know you know sitting at home in my basement, and and it 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 holds up. It's still it's still terrific. I, I had a lot of fun. Cool. So that's it. That's our, uh, those are our Oscar picks. We're going to take a little break and then we're going to come back and talk about, uh, Rob Marshall, Chicago. All right. So, so musicals used to be a, a standard Oscar genre. Many, many great musicals have won Academy Awards. Uh, the great Ziegfeld, which not a great musical, but it has some, some greatness in it. Uh, An American in Paris is a fantastic film. The West Side Story's great movie. Uh, Singing in the uh, not Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain did not win. Uh, the Sound of Music has both music and sound in it. Um, <laughs> the last musical to win was from 2002, and it is Chicago, directed by Rob Marshall. And it is technically a musical. There is singing and there is dancing. It's uh, it's based on on a few sources. That's an original stage play from the 1920s that was turned into a silent film. And I think 1927, uh, there was a version of that that came out in 19 in the early 1940s and starred Ginger Rogers called Roxy Hart. Uh, but the the closest antecedent is the uh, stage show. Uh, produced in the in the early 1970s by Bob Fosse and uh, some collaborators, that was not all that well received when it came out. It actually lost all of the Tonys to a Chorus Line, which is a much more popular show. Uh, the show was revived in the 1990s and kind of changed around and made a little less experimental, a little less uh, Brechtian than Fosse's original show. And it's it's that production that seems to have formed the basis for for Rob Marshall's story. Uh, it's set in the 1920s in the world of uh, wannabe showgirls, and the way that they end up wanting to be famous is by killing people and using that uh, that notoriety that they get in the press in order to further their their song and dance career, pretty much. It stars uh, Renee Zellweger as Roxy Hart, uh, an innocent and, and really pretty dumb blonde who uh, kills uh, Jimmy McNulty in a, a yes. fit of jealousy and ends up going to jail. She hires Richard Gere to defend her, who's a very flashy criminal lawyer, 
and she uh, engenders the jealousy of Catherine Zeta-Jones, who is another showgirl on trial for murder. And, yeah, some plot ensues, but it's mostly some musical numbers. And the musical numbers are, oddly and, and surprising to me, is they're all kind of imagined. They all seem to take place in the characters' minds, as opposed to, like, the West Side Story type uh, of uh, musical numbers that kind of further the plot along. They all seem to be designed to, you know, give depth to the characters and kind of identify them. Uh, I don't know how successful it is at doing that. The The original conception of the, uh, the stage show in the 70s was that each character was modeled on a specific type of performer from the 1920s, and then their musical numbers would be done in that style. Uh, do you think that Rob Marshall succeeds in, in differentiating the musical styles and the character uh, types that he has Not in his film? No. Uh, I can't... I. You know, I watched this, what, three days ago, maybe? Um, and for the most part, every musical number um, bleeds together in my brain now. Um, there's very, very little to distinguish them from each other because, in part, uh, it's filmed so poorly. <laughs> um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think at least half of the musical numbers, and there are a lot of... of there's a lot of music in this. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily call them numbers, but um, a lot of them are on black, you know, all black surface. You know, there's just black nothingness, this void where they're performing. You know, maybe there's like a light up sign or something at one point. Um, but most of it just takes place in this nebulous void, which I guess you're right. I mean, it, it, I guess could be their minds, but that just goes to show that they have little imagination because they can't visualize anything that's going on around them. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, um, the dominant uh, visual aesthetic is 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 of of shadows and silhouettes and and backlit performers and and there's kind of these striking lighting effects, uh, but they they're 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 the same for so yeah, many of the numbers. Like the biggest variation is that sometimes it's like an orange light and sometimes it's a blue light and sometimes it's a white light, but mostly it's just light and shadow. Yeah, um, and you know. To, there are a couple, I'll be generous, there are a couple of little things that um, are kind of interesting to do with that blackness, where like a mirror will appear out of nowhere or something, that's kind of interesting visually for like half a second, um, but then it just, everything falls back into that void, and it's just, um, it yeah, it all runs together, it's very tedious, um, and completely unmemorable uh, for me, I mean, I... Like I said, I, I watched this like 48 hours ago <laughs> and uh, not much really stuck with me in it, except the fact that it feels a lot longer than uh, 113 minutes. <laughs> yeah, well, like, you, you, you know, I'm, I'm a big Bob Fosse fan. We, we played two of his movies at Metro Classics. We played Cabaret and, and All That Jazz, uh, which, of course, takes its title from, from the opening song of, of Chicago. And, uh, and All That Jazz is a, a kind of semi-biographical uh, movie about, about the time Fosse was preparing the Chicago stage show at the same time he was editing his film Lenny. And there's a couple musical numbers in, in, uh, in All That Jazz that, that seem to be uh, Marshall's inspiration for, for his visual style. 
in in Chicago, and also you know several of the musical numbers in in cabaret, especially. Uh, I think I think he's he's trying to copy Fosse, but I don't think he understands the mechanics of how Fosse's films work, and I think it's just a very very basic misapprehension of the way that you edit film and how you edit a, a musical number. Now, Fosse's choreography is, is very distinctive for uh, having his, his dancers kind of freeze in these weird poses with like their, their limbs in odd angles, and it makes really odd shapes. And, and Fosse was like that as a choreographer. He was also like that as a dancer, which you can see in, in Kiss Me Kate, which is another um, movie that we played at, uh, at Metro Classics. And in, in Cabaret especially, Fosse will, will cut really rapidly during these musical numbers so you have the people freezing in odd poses but you have like quick cuts to where you're like seeing you know flashes of different images and it's usually of the dancers but it can like be other stuff interpolated within the dance as well now what what marshall does is he cuts on at the on at the beat where the dancers freeze so you're not seeing the effect of the motion stopping in in the one pose you're just seeing a bunch of what looks like disconnected images. You're not seeing the flow of the dance because the cut is where the movement stops. Does that make sense? At right. All? No, absolutely. It, it, you, you nailed it. I mean, that's exactly what happens here is um, you can't, that's why nothing's memorable is because you're never given anything to, to remember. Like he, and, he cuts, he cuts so frequently. And so at least from my perspective, randomly um it like like it's like he shot everything with like five cameras or something and was just like okay well i'm gonna get queen latifah from the audience view but now i'm gonna get her from up on high and then i'm gonna here's here's what really annoys me about this movie actually now i'm gonna start digging into it (laughs) i'm taking the gloves off um what he really does with cutting here that annoys the hell out of me and he does this a lot in the film is he he will alternate in a dance number and a musical number between the musical number and then what's really happening or or something that re- reflects what what the the song is about or whatever and it happens um, a couple well it happens all the time in this movie because it's re- repetitive and redundant but um, for example um, we get a scene of John C Riley who plays uh, Renee Zellweger's uh, husband. Uh, you know, he's a sad sack loser and he probably takes advantage of him or whatever, but he sticks by her because he's a nice guy. Um, and he has this number. He and I love John C Riley. I really do. Like, I was, I was great. It was great to see him in here. And I, you know, he was kind of a little shining light, even though he's wasted. Um, kind of like Myrna Loy, um, great Ziegfeld, but. Uh, so he just like sad sack number, but then while the song continues, it cuts to him, like you know, it, going about the story and learning about his wife's infidelities and and how you know all these things, and it's trying to make this like juxtaposition or this commentary on what he's singing, and it makes both of those things um, unmemorable because it it just doesn't cohere at all, um, and Marshall does this again and again and again culminating in this trial scene at the end where this fantastic lawyer played by Richard Gere is supposed to be just completely rocking the court and intercut with him doing this tap number. And it completely 
cancels out both scenes, which could have been interesting on their own. Like, you know, maybe the tapping is pretty interesting, but you don't get a chance to actually absorb any of it because he'll be like talking over the tapping. Um, and it's like, it doesn't make any sense. It's just complete kind of visual, verbal, audio, like vomit. Yeah, there's there, there's uh, my letterbox review of this consisted of, of one line from the song uh, Razzle Dazzle, which uh, Richard Gere's lawyer sings uh, as an explanation of how he's going to get Roxy uh, Roxy off. Uh, he says, uh, as long as you keep them way off balance, how can they spot that you've got no talent? Which is, is just a perfect sum- summation of the whole kind of quick cut to hide the fact that the actors can't do anything aesthetic that it, it's not just in, in Rob Marshall musicals, but it's also like the dominant Hollywood aesthetic in, in action movies. And I don't know if it's necessarily that Rob Marshall doesn't understand editing or if he's just trying to cover up for the fact that the actors that he's cast in his movie can't dance at all. <laughs> like the, the singing, the singing is okay. Like I, I think, uh, I think John C. Riley uh, sings Mr. Cellophane nicely. I think yeah. that's a, I think that's a nice performance, but they can't dance. They are they are I, bad at dancing. Like the the final number uh, uh, nowadays with uh, with uh, Catherine Zeta Jones and Renee Zellweger uh, dancing before like this this enormous uh, marquee that is uh, is much like the opening credits for the Great Ziegfeld. It's like the the big old style marquees with like the all the individual light bulbs. Um, Catherine Zeta-Jones can't dance at all. She's she's not you know finishing her movements. It's very lazy, and and they're, the two of them are they're supposed to be in sync. And you know you might excuse that as like a meta commentary as the fact that these characters actually don't have that much talent. It's just their their notoriety that has made them a success. But I I think that's uh, I think that that's a, a kind of a weak excuse. For, well, for just the fact the that only- they hired that they hired names and they hired you know you know pretty ladies who who can act but can't actually dance. Well, the, yeah, and the only way that that meta commentary would work is if it worked in like a um, like a, a Wolf of Wall Street sort of way, where like it's it's making us culpable for like putting these people on a pedestal. What exactly happens is, is this movie actually ends kind of similarly to the Wolf of Wall Street, where these two people who are her murderers uh are get off you know and and they become stars by you know doing this stage show together and and everybody loves them and it ends the movie on this very triumphant note or whatever but i don't think there's any like message behind that from marshall it's just like oh we need to make this movie go out with a, a, a you know a happy bang or whatever so let's get these you know rah 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 and you're like wait but they totally murdered all these people <laughs> like what's going on here um it's stupid um another thing that annoys me about it and this is this is like just very lazy screenwriting and 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 filmmaking in general Time and again in this movie, and this is separate from the dance numbers, um, it, it it's it's boggling that 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 they allowed this to happen. But um, there will be a scene where, for example, like Renee Zellweger's character, um, who's been kind of following the lead laid out by uh, the smooth talking Richard Gere um, about how to play the media and stuff, um, she's following him. But then she starts to kind of, um, you know, kind of butt up against that she doesn't like that she's being told what to do so she's like well you know what i'm gonna go out on my own and he says don't do that you're gonna make a fool of yourself 
you need to listen to me. And she's like, ah, screw you. I'm going to do what I want. And then the next scene will be her doing that and screwing up. And then it'll go back to everything was fine. And they keep doing that throughout the movie where like, where a character will be like, I won't do this. And then it'll show them doing it or, or vice versa or something like that. And it's just like, really? Yeah. It's, it's like, it's there's really... no momentum. There's no momentum to this. Yeah, then in in that way, this in just the kind of sloppiness of the construction, it, it reminded me a lot of American Hustle, which is yeah. another film that that tries to keep you off balance in order to to hide the fact that it it doesn't know what it's doing. Uh, it's just it, it just tends to to lurch from one big moment to another, usually punctuated by by a musical number, and the the characters have very little logic or or consistency to their actions and. Yeah, and like Lucy Liu shows up for like a minute and then disappears. Where did that come from? I know. Well, I mean, I think it's all wrapped up at the beginning of the movie when uh, when Roxy um, comes home with McNulty, uh, we mentioned, uh, and Dominic West, and um, so they get home. You know, he's she's married, but you know she's she's with him on the side, and so they they start you know getting it on. They have sex, and then like right after they have sex, he gets up and he's like, "I don't want you to touch me ever again," and like he like totally flips out for like no apparent reason. Um, yeah, well, the 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 timeline has has jumped months with and, no and, apparent yeah. you know explanation to us, and and then it's just a string of like comprehensible stupidity. Yeah, John C. Um, Riley's character has no logic to it at all. At first, he's like he's happy to protect her, and then he wants to see her hang, and then he wants to hire Richard Gere, and then he doesn't care, and then he does, and it just it doesn't make any sense. And we have no idea where he got the money to pay Richard Gere. It, it's it's nonsensical. It doesn't make any. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. <sighs> yeah, I I I disliked this movie. This is not. <laughs> It's not the worst best picture winner I've ever seen. It's not crashed, is what you're saying? It's not crash. It's not that bad. <laughs> but it is it's it's also it's not it's not the worst movie I've seen from two thousand two. Uh that that would be Brett Ratner's uh uh Hannibal Lecter film Red Dragon, which I, I think is just reprehensible. Uh what is what? What would you have given the Oscar to in two thousand two? Because I'm I'm pretty sure it wouldn't be Chicago. Well, there are a lot of great films to pick from from two thousand two, and uh, what I'm actually going to go with is uh, the Disney film Lilo and Stitch, which I actually recently caught up with uh, last year for the first. Heard good things about it, and. Uh, it's a really fun film that I, I doesn't get as much love as it should. It's a really interesting original story from Disney, which is kind of rare, um, about an alien who befriends this kind of awkward uh, Hawaiian girl. And it's really sweet, um, cheaply, but it doesn't look it. And uh, I really actually want to rewatch it. So uh, I'm going with Lilo and Stitch. Interesting. Uh, I have not seen that one. <laughs> But uh, the the film I, I'm going to pick is is pretty obvious. It's it's Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love with Adam Sandler, uh, which I just think is a great movie. I think it's great too. It wouldn't have been my pick, but I knew you were going to go with it, so I went with this one. Yeah, it's, and plus, it's, uh, it's I it 
it's as close as Paul Thomas Anderson has come, I think, to making a musical. Like, I think Boogie Nights is, is really musical, but it is the score is so integral to Punch Drunk Love, and it, it's, uh, it's such an emotional kind of melodrama about this really kind of withdrawn, nerdy guy with anger management problems who, who falls in love. Um, yeah, it's great, and it, it uses a lot of the score from, uh, from Robert Altman's Popeye, which is another film that I love and uh, is also better than Chicago. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a great pick. It's a great film. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's 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 enough of Chicago. Let's listen to the uh, the best song Oscar winner from two thousand two, uh, not from Chicago. Uh, this is uh, from Eight Mile, Eminem's "Lose Yourself." Thank you, Mr. Marshall Mathers um, and Rob Marshall for the wonderful year that was 2002. Uh, this is our 2014 Oscar Spectacular. Um, we've got nothing more to say about these movies. So um, if you are in New York in the next uh, couple of weeks, there's going to be a film series at the uh, Museum of the Moving Image. And you're going to be really surprised at my choice here, Sean, because it's actually inspired by the new West Ham Grand Budapest Hotel. They're doing a series called Hotels Film, and they're showing uh, a bunch of great films. They're showing um, some Bergman, showing uh, Fassbinder, um, but the ones I'm picking are Barton Fink, and, which I you know picked the Coens last week, and uh, The Shining. Um, but I, I think that that can make for a really interesting series of, of films set in hotels. Are they, are they playing the 1932 Best Picture Winter Grand Hotel? They are Sunday, March 9th at two p.m. Yeah, that that movie is not that good. <laughs> uh, I haven't seen it. Uh, Greta Garbo's in it. She's she's cool, and Joan Crawford cool. is actually pretty interesting in it too, and a, a very a youthful Joan Crawford. 
beginning in the uh, in the next two weeks is the SXSW, which is really hard for me to pronounce, Film Festival in uh, in Austin, Texas. And on March 10th, they are playing a 40th anniversary screening of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, Toby Hooper's uh, original uh, slasher film that is one of the scariest, most uh, unnerving horror films I've ever seen. I, I recommend it a lot. And it's got uh, an opening narration by John Larroquette, which I love me some John Larroquette. Have you seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Isn't it just South by Southwest? You don't have to say S-X-S-W. <sighs> yeah, fine. <laughs> it says S-X-S-W on my screen here. So I'm like thinking, that. damn it. Uh, I, I have seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, I saw it on video uh, a zillion years ago. And um, I don't think I was paying too much attention. I was probably doing other things at the time. But yeah, it's pretty freaky. Um, it's a pretty freaky film. If you are uh, wanting to find out more about us, you can find us on the web at thegeorgesandersshow.blogspot.com. Well, we are also on Twitter at geosandersshow. And uh, we have an email address, thegeorgesandersshow at gmail.com. Uh, next time on the show, we, uh, this is Sean's pick, ladies and gentlemen. Um, tying, in with the, tying in with the new Paul W.S. Anderson film, Pompeii, we will be discussing uh, the classic Jason and the Argonauts uh, from Ray Harryhausen uh, and uh, the Three Musketeers from P.W.S. Anderson. Uh, So that'll be interesting. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be a blast. I I guarantee that that, uh, you probably will not like the Three Musketeers, but you got to love Jason and the Argonauts. It's, It's a fantastic movie. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, I've seen that, so... Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm happy to revisit it. So um, that'll be an interesting show. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to seeing Pompeii too. I know you're not going to drag yourself out to the theater to do it because you have uh, you have better things to do. But uh, I want. I'm watching look- a western a day in in March. Every single day in March, I'm watching a western. And then uh, uh, next week uh, after the Oscars, we should have a uh, an episode of the They Shot Pictures podcast on Hayao Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli. We're going to re- be recording that next Saturday. So looking forward to that. Uh, what We settled on the, the movies we were going to, to talk about? We did. We're going to be talking about Kiki's Delivery Service, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, Only Yesterday, and the new Miyazaki film, The Wind Rises, which opens uh, in Seattle. Actually, it's already open in Seattle. Um, and then it opens wider uh, on Friday. Yeah, so looking forward to that. I, I can't wait to for my double feature of Pompeii and The Wind Rises. <laughs> so with that, uh let's listen to uh let's listen to George Sanders. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. Just a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. And when two lovers woo, they still say, I love you. On that you can rely. 
matter what the future brings as time goes by. Moonlight and love songs never out of date. Hearts full of passion, jealousy and hate. Woman needs man. And man must have his mate that no one can deny. It's still the same old story, a fight for love and glory, a case of do or die. 